This is Brother Michael A. Smith, a voice for Freemasonry, bringing to you the Short Talk Bulletin, published by the Masonic Service Association of North America every month since 1923. This, the Short Talk Bulletin podcast, is produced in cooperation with the MSA and is made possible with the generous support of a grant from the Grand Lodge AFNAM of Minnesota. Volume 14, Number 12, from December of 1936. Refreshment. Written by Carl H. Claudy. According to ancient Masonic usage, a lodge is either open, at refreshment, or closed. The call from labor to refreshment today has not the same meaning given it by brethren of long ago. In the early days of Freemasonry, when operative lodges began accepting speculative members, and the craft became a center of light and learning and brotherhood as well as a union of skilled workmen, the lodge banquet or refreshment assumed great importance. In 1598, William Shaw drew up a code of laws for the government of the craft in Scotland. This document, known as the Shaw Statutes, bears the title, The Statutes and Ordinances to be Observed by All the Master Masons Within This Realm, set down by William Shaw, Master of Work to His Majesty and General Warden of said craft, with the consent of the Masters after specified. General Warden, at that time, had the power and prestige of Grand Masters of today. As Master of the Work for King James VI, William Shaw was an educated, important, and leading citizen. As his statutes devote considerable attention to food and drink, it is evident that refreshment was then a necessary part of Masonic life and work. Translating the Scottish words into English, we read, that all fellows of the craft, at his entry, pay to the common book of the lodge the sum of ten pounds money with ten shillings worth of glufus, or ever he be admitted, that for the banquet. Again, that all prentices to be admitted be not admitted until they first pay to the common banquet for all the members of the craft within the said lodge and prentices thereof. With the Shaw Statutes for Authority, it is not surprising to find such entries as the following in the records of the Lodge at Edinburgh, December 13, 1599. The same day the deacon and masters of the Lodge of Edinburgh ordained John Watt, son to Thomas Watt, to pay to the common affairs of the craft ten pounds money before he is entered prentice, and ordained the said John Watt to be entered prentice and to make his banquet within eighteen days next to come. A hundred years later, at the minutes of the Lodge Melrose, we read of certain expenditures. To James Bunyi for going to Melrose about the flesh and the bread. To Agnes Philip for ale. To Agnes Philip for making the meat ready, and also for beer. To William Browen for wheat bread, two legs of mutton, a pound of tobacco and pipes, and a capful of salt. Refreshment in Lodge has not only great antiquity, but the respectability of great names connected thereto. Many brethren are familiar with the picture, 
by Stuart Watson of the inauguration of Robert Burns as the Poet Laureate of Canongate Kilwinning Lodge. A careful examination discloses a toddy kettle in the foreground, while at the other end of the room a brother presides at the punch bowl. Meanwhile, the worshipful master proceeds with the inauguration ceremonies. However, we do not depend wholly on the testimony of a picture for proof that refreshment and business were often simultaneous in the days which, fortunately, come not back forever. Minutes of Lodge Jedbuch, December 27, 1805, say, It is agreed on by the master and office bearers of this lodge that in order to preserve union and harmony in our meetings in future, that the whole business of the lodge and society shall be discussed by vote and fairly settled in the town hall here. And after returning to dinner and the lodge then opened, no member shall move or vote. In other words, no business was to be transacted at dinner. In 1809, the same lodge enacted, Any member coming into the lodge or society's meeting drunk or getting drunk at the time of the meeting, and behaving disorderly, shall by the order of the master or presses leave the meeting. Whereby it is indicated that there must have been facilities for getting inebriated during the lodge meeting. Contemporary minutes of many other early lodges contain items of payment for broken glasses and for liquor and punch. Truly, we have come a long way. In this country, at least, all forms of liquor are universally forbidden in Masonic temples. If the Scottish refreshment of early days ran largely to liquid refreshment, in England the emphasis was on food, with wine, ale, or beer in quantity, but not as principal items. Dr. Robert Plott, in his Natural History of Staffordshire, printed in 1686, referred to the making of masons in these words. When any are admitted, they call a meeting, or lodge as they term it in some places, and entertain with a collation according to the custom of the place. This ended, they proceed to the admission of them. Elias Eshmol, famous antiquarian, refers in his diary to a lodge meeting he attended in London in 1682. We all dined at the Half Moon Tavern in Cheapside, at a noble dinner prepared at the charge of the new accepted Masons. It is no less true than curious that customs remain long after their causes are forgotten. Some lodges still meet at the full moon. In an older day, night travel without the moon was difficult, if not dangerous. With automobiles and headlights, well-lit towns and highways, the reason for the old custom is no more. The lodge banquet of today is now a matter of good fellowship, an attendance bribe, a pleasant occasion. When brethren had to travel long distance on foot or horse to attend, a dinner for man and beast was essential. In those days, the junior warden's column erect meant more than a mere breathing spell. Brother William Boyden, librarian of the Supreme Council, ancient accepted Scottish Rite, southern jurisdiction, has collected a number of interesting references to refreshment from ancient minutes. 
The following is from an article on the subject published in The Builder, 1926. St. John's Lodge of Boston, as early as 1733, had the following bylaw. 3. No brother or brothers shall set any victuals in the lodge room while the lodge is open, without the leave of the master or wardens, nor call for any liquor or tobacco without leave, as aforesaid. Rural Philanthropic Lodge, number 291, Highbridge, had this bylaw in 1793. 4. That the stewards do keep an account of all food or liquor brought into the lodge each night, and demand the bill in due season, and that the whole night's expenses do not exceed one shilling and sixpence each. Visiting fees and nights of making accepted. And that the bill be discharged each night before ten o'clock. Any liquor brought into the lodge after that time shall be paid for by the person ordering the same. And if the steward neglects his duties, as above, he shall pay all extra expenses himself. It is evident that refreshments were often provided at the funeral of a deceased brother, as witness the following from Richmond Lodge, number 10, Richmond, Virginia, under the date of May 5, 1817. The steward's bill, amounting to blank, including refreshments for the funeral of Brother Robert Mayo, ordered to be paid. One of the rules of the old Grand Lodge at York in 1725, provides, 4. The bowl shall be filled at the monthly lodges with punch once, ale, bread, cheese, and tobacco in common. But if anything more shall be called for by any brother, either for eating or drinking, that brother so calling shall pay for it himself besides his club. The Lodge of Edinburgh, in arranging for the annual festival of 1741, Resolved that in place of tickets, each brother at his entry to the chapel shall pay one shilling sterling for eating an ale or small beer, and to pay for what iron or punch they think fit to call for, and that the treasurer furnish coal and candle on the public expense of the lodge. A lodge in Pennsylvania evidently had to go slow on expenses. For while it probably had ale or beer as a matter of course, a motion was made December 14th, 1763, that Brother Phoenix is desired to supply the lodge with a good cheese and one bag of buttered biscuit. Old Colony Lodge, Hingham, Massachusetts, January 10th, 1793, voted not to have any refreshments but liquors and crackers and cheese. The Lodge of St. Andrews, Boston, November 28, 1809. Voted that the refreshments for the ensuing year be tongues and bread. At the annual feast of Old Dundee Lodge, London, June 23, 1748, there were eleven members and two visitors present. Here is the expense of the menu. Six ducks, one ham, two necks veal, wine, rum, sugar and lemons, beer and tobacco, beans, six quarts, eating, dressing, tarts, tyler, servants, for a grand total, four pounds, seven shillings, four pence.
Temple Lodge, Albany, New York, on March 19, 1800, passed the following. Resolved that some brother be appointed to procure refreshments for the lodge, consisting of good brandy, spirits, crackers, and cheese, for which he shall collect one shilling from each member and visitor partaking of the same, and for every neglect he shall forfeit and pay the sum of twenty-five cents into the treasury, unless a reasonable excuse can be given. Many modern temples are provided with refreshment rooms, banquet halls, kitchens, tables, tableware, all the necessities for a banquet at the least inconvenience to the brethren. But the good old custom of serving refreshments in the lodge room still continues in many a country lodge, lodges in which the stewards have genuine stewards' work to do, seeing that the tables are set up, chairs placed, dishes brought out, and food served. Eating in the lodge room is a custom hoary with years. Hiram's History of Old Dundee Lodge, London, describes the lodge at refreshment in 1763. It's easy to reconstruct the scene. The table, having six leaves, set out on trestles in the middle of the lodge. At first, the brethren were seated on chairs at these tables. But as the membership increased, forms were provided in place of the chairs as being more convenient and leaving a larger space for the ceremonies. But it will be remembered that, as our lodge room from 1763 to 1820 was 44 feet long by 25 feet wide and 15 feet high, there was plenty of room available for these tables. Thirty yards of bordered green cloth were purchased, 1790, to cover same with, and on these tables were placed the bowls of steaming punch, bottles of wine, rum, hollands, brandy, sugar, lemons, nutmegs, and glasses. And for the smokers, churchwardens, screws of tobacco, called papers, and pipe lights were supplied. It being remembered that smoking and drinking were also allowed in Grand Lodge for many years. When food was served, white tablecloths, napkins, and knives and forks were laid. Our own chair lady, a Mrs. Benning in 1801, assisting to wash and iron the napery for our brethren. Not even a brief tale of the history of refreshment would be complete without mention of the table lodge. In an older day in England, notably prior to the reconciliation between the rival Grand Lodges in 1813, it was a common practice for lodges to meet about one or two long tables, often covered with green bays, extending from east to west. Here, initiation was conducted and toasts were drunk, even during some parts of the ceremonies. In early days, it was also the custom, if the host at inn or tavern where meetings were held was not a member of the craft, to make him a serving brother by giving him the apprentice degree, that the brethren might be at ease while talking of lodge matters at table. From the ancient custom of refreshment at lodge, arose the beautiful art of decoration of lodge pottery, glasses, and napery. Many Masonic museums are filled with the Masonic work of the potter, in which emblems, mottos, quotations from ritual, signs and symbols of the craft, 
together with lodged names, numbers, and dates, are fired into the clay by loving workmanship. Many an old pipe with the square and compasses carved thereon is cherished in the cases of museums. Masonic plates, cups, saucers, and glasses spread large with signs and symbols may be found in the great collections in Philadelphia, New York, and Cedar Rapids, Iowa, as well as in lesser collections, all mute testimony to the importance in which refreshment in the old Masonic sense of dinner and drink before, after, or during a meeting was held by our ancient brethren. Beginning with the food scarcity during the war, Wheatless Mondays, etc., a movement grew to abolish the spending of lodge money on food, either for light refreshments after the meeting or for banquets. Luckily, the food shortage did not continue. Today, lodges put far less emphasis on the old idea of refreshment than did our ancient brethren. But it is devoutly to be hoped the old custom will not die out, since what the English brethren call the festive board promotes friendship and fellowship. In the words of most worshipful Edward B. Paul, past Grand Master of British Columbia, the refreshment table of Freemasonry is symbolical not only of our liberty, within the bounds of temperance and prudence, to partake of the material blessings lavished on us by God, but it is also an emblem of a figurative table provided with materials for the satisfaction of our mental and moral appetites. The viands are the thoughts of great and good men, either presented to us in books or by word of mouth, and the satisfaction we derive from moral and virtuous actions. Freemasonry has set limits to prevent our abuse of these blessings. But in placing before us material as well as mental and spiritual food, it effectively rebukes those who look on physical gratification, even within lawful limits, as sinful, and who seek to obtain God's favor by neglect and contempt of His temple, the human body. Let us not always say, Spite of this flesh today, I strove, made head, gained ground upon the whole. As the bird wings and sings, let us cry, all good things are ours, nor soul helps flesh more now than flesh helps soul. This has been the Short Talk Bulletin Podcast, produced in cooperation with the Masonic Service Association of North America and is made possible through a generous grant from the Grand Lodge AF&AM of Minnesota, who have been engaging and inspiring good men who believe in a supreme being to live according to the Masonic tenets of brotherly love, relief, and truth since 1853.